0: And welcome to Diddy and Hawthorne and the In Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host Mackenzie Gents, now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. This week, Bleak House week number two, we've got some very excellent episodes coming out. week one obviously today the next one on thursday and the final one over the weekend what i ended up doing is recording serials five and six in this episode on thursday we'll be going over serials seven and eight and then over the weekend we will have a very fun more casual discussion on three different quotes that i pulled from the novel if you hear me say serials five through eight in this episode, just know I'm referring to the week at large and not necessarily this particular episode. If you missed the first Bleak House week, those episodes will be linked on the website, of course, but also at relevanceofliterature.com notes. This episode will be an overview and a discussion of especially the plot, but also the major themes and touch points of Bleak House for the section. My argument for these serials, serials 5 through 8, that we will be detailing is that no aspect of society is safe from Dickens's criticism, aside from perhaps the moral and upright represented by our second narrator Esther Summerson. During this episode, I will be highlighting, aside from the plot and these major touch points, the relationships of the characters, of course, between themselves and between Jarndyce and Jarndyce, the major court case in question, as well as how Dickens criticizes these characters within that relationship in the text. Throughout the series, I will, as I said last time, be using the Barnes & Noble Classics edition of the text, so all of the page numbers that I will be referencing and as well as the editing and various markings that are coming from this text are going to be used accordingly. We start off here in chapter 14, it's called Deportment in Serial 5. This is narrated by Esther. So Richard, who is Esther's fellow warden of Cousin John Jarndyce, one of the main proponents of the case by inheritance, Richard, who we left off with as a surgeon's apprentice with Mr. and Mrs. Badger, is finally leaving to start his actual surgeon career. This will come up quite a bit later. So he embarks on his first apprenticeship journey. John, Ada, and Esler take the opportunity to go to London and visit the Jellybees. Remember Mrs. Jellybee, the three wards got to see on their way to Bleak House the first time. Mrs. Jellybee is a bit of a philanthropist and she's quite preoccupied with Africa, so much so that she lets her own children and house go into quite disarray caddy jellybee the oldest daughter meets them at the house and laments she is upset clearly about the state of the house still she makes a hilarious attempt to dress Pee-Pee, her younger brother up uh, and fails she does not have any skills really except for writing and she's trying to better herself but really the source of her lament is that she is engaged to a one Prince Turveydrop, Drop, who is the son of the owner of this dance academy farther in town. Prince Turveydrop Drop really runs the dance company, I will say, and <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. A quick note on how Dickens treats these philanthropists here. Dickens has a staunch criticism of philanthropists throughout the text, not only Mrs. Jellybee, and and certainly not accepting um, Mrs. Jellybee here, but the main commentary on philanthropists at this point, at least in this chapter, is that they can't do much if their own house is not in order. And that's something that we will see time and time again in this novel, is their internal affairs in these households as representative of their external well-being, how much they're able to contribute. So they all visit the dance academy, and by they all I mean Caddy and Esther, and they meet old Turveydrop, who is this. They call him the figure of deportment, which is essentially a stand-in for fake nobility, His main theme in terms of his dress is a falsehood in dress and in manner. He is a part of this upper class, upper eschaton of society by virtue of pretending to be so. It's not that he was born in a super high position or has the uh, source of income from some sort of inheritance or something to maintain that kind of lifestyle. It's that he fakes it until he makes it. And in fact, he uh, danced his wife practically to death while she is dead and is now using his son and the entire income stream of this dance studio that they have to fund his facade and to fund his very expensive habits. And he is very, very manipulative. And we see... At least I see Old Turvey Drop as a figure of this class of society. I want to say the nouveau riche, as in for example the Great Gatsby. It's not quite that, maybe the upper middle class is a better way to put it, but someone who idolizes the upper classes and the royal way of living to the extent of extreme detriment again in their own household we see that Prince really essentially is working himself to death. He is teaching a long, long time. He gets like 15 minutes or an hour break maximum. That is it. So essentially he teaches, teaches, then he goes to eat, then he teaches, teaches again. He lives on almost nothing while his father lives on everything they can make and probably more. And he has this external, very noble defined exterior that his dress and his way of talking and walking and living in terms of his uh, dining out and so forth prescribes and yet his own again his own household is in shambles and he also might I add contributes really nothing to society but just being a figurehead of his own whims prince and caddy are interestingly in the same position in this regard in that the internal states of affairs of their families are in the same position because of these very selfish parents very narcissistic parents who are working for causes that really don't matter as far as dickens is portraying them as far as esther sees them at least um and yet these families are in shambles for for nothing. There's really a nihilistic kind of uh, theme or mood here that prevails. I have a quote here on page 199, quote, and this is from Esther, by the way. I began to inquire in my mind whether there were or ever had been any other gentlemen not in the dancing profession, who lived and founded a reputation entirely on their deportment, unquote. So again, seeing the uselessness, your nobility, especially false nobility, contributes nothing if not honor to your own home. At the close of the chapter here, they, Caddy, and Esther visit Miss Flight, who Caddy has become quite white close with miss flight remember is the crazy old lady who attends all of the court proceedings at the court of chancery she has all those birds that she's locked up and she lives with mr crook john cousin john that is john Jarndyce, is giving extra money we find to miss flight through Kengi and carboy the lawyers of the trial there they find mr woodcourt namely the dark-complexioned doctor that was at Nemo's funeral, and also I believe at the Badger's house when we ended this, uh, the chapter there uh, in Serial 4. Mr. Woodcourt is, in my mind, an important figure, and I'm not sure why yet <laughs> at this point, so uh, let's keep our eye on him, shall we? Mr. Crook in this close here, it's quite weird about Cousin John. He's never met a direct descendant, it seems, of the court case. I know that he was quite close and familiar with the old Jarndyce who committed suicide. But other than that, uh, he's quite obsessive in a very strange, staring way with Cousin John that we're not sure exactly what it's quite about yet. Chapter 15 Bell Yard, narrated again by Esther. They are in London still and they are visited by this whole slew of philanthropists, namely Mr. Quail, Mrs. Jellybee, Mrs. Partigle, and Mr. Gusher. Cousin John really doesn't like these philanthropists, they are all just a facade. And they really don't contribute anything in terms of societally, uh, at least from Cousin John's perspective. He doesn't like supporting them or dealing with them at all. seems like Skimpole here, this is John's, almost another one of John's wards. Skimpole is the older middle-aged gentleman who is essentially a child. He doesn't know what money is, what work is. Any of these things. Yet he's very artistically inclined. He's very amusing, in that respect. Skimpole visits Covenses, who is the debtor in the serials one through four. Um, Covenses, Covenses, I'm not sure what the actual character's name is besides the nickname. Um, he's he's dead. So he died. This debtor died. There was some something about a come to. Morality or come to values shock in him apparently, but he really got a lot of mistreatment in his life for being someone a debt collector Um, And of course people don't like debt collectors For obvious reasons, but yes, he's dead. He leaves three surviving children who are like nine and under they're extremely young and one is a lap child Um, Charlie Tom and Emma his children. Charlie is working uh, full time as a maid, whatever work she can get. And she's this small little girl, right? And she's going out to the workhouses all day, supporting her little uh, siblings. And Tom, uh, this kid of about five or six, is babysitting the baby Emma all day. Uh, Insane conditions, very reminiscent of Oliver Twist, for example, and just the kind of deplorable childhood conditions that you would hope to never see today. There's this neighbor, Gridley, who is a very aggressive figure, but the children have taken to him. They quite like him. He's very amicable to them. He was also wronged by the court of Chancery. His whole inheritance was tossed up in it, and he is having to work and to uh, sustain himself otherwise, like he, he just lost everything from the court of chancery. So he responds to that with this immense rage and anger and passion when the court of chancery is brought up. And finally, there's this contrast, interestingly, of Skimpole and Covens's children. And of course, Skimpole is the carefree entity here. He has this carefree existence versus these children who are working all day and literally just trying to stay alive. And somehow Skimpole gets the long end of the stick and is able to be a 40 to 50 year old child. My question here at this point for you all is why devote so much space to skimpole if the ultimate goal is a critique on skimpole? It seems to me like the reason why skimpole here is contrasted so heavily with the children is, of course, a broader critique on why does this man get to live this way versus these children who are destitute. Why does skimpole, in other words, have this sort of miraculous good luck in the world, whereas these children do not. Uh, and yet, a large amount of the book is spent detailing Skimpole's various debacles <laughs> and debaucheries. It's it's very perplexing to me, and I'm sure that there are several readings of Skimpole that I'm glossing over for the sake of time, but that is my major question to you all for this section, is what's going on with Skimpole? Is Perhaps we can go even broader. Is Dickens actually critiquing Skimpole, or is Dickens highlighting Skimpole as almost a pinnacle figure here? My guess is it's a critique. As I said, I think Dickens is critiquing every character in this book, except for Esther, and maybe Cousin John, maybe Ada. So that's my read of it, but you all can agree and disagree with me as you like. Chapter 16, Tom all alone. We are back to the omniscient narrator. We come in here with Sir Deadlock. He is succumbing to a bit of the gout, which is a an infl- inflammatory disease, where it was said, back way back when, when Dickens was writing, <laughs> that. When men would partake of extremely fine delicacies, if they drank too much or ate too rich foods, they would get this insane inflammation and it would be extremely painful, especially in the legs in this case with uh, Sir Deadlock. The gout is supposedly the Deadlock family curse as well, so it seems like these people have a tradition of (laughs) perhaps uh, partaking too much or I'm not sure what the modern equivalent of gout is. You can leave that in the comments as well if you like. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a familial line here. Lady deadlock is, as we left off with her, restless. I have a quote on page 220 that is actually probably what I wrote in my notes as the crux of this whole serials five through eight. Like this is a really big quote to summarize a lot of this. Quote, what connection can there be between the place in Lincolnshire, the house in town, the mercury and powder, and the whereabout of Joe the outlaw with the broom, who had that distant ray of light upon him when he slept the churchyard step? What connection can there have been between many people in the innumerable histories of this world who from opposite sides of great gulfs have nevertheless been very curiously brought together? Unquote. Honestly, that could be quite a quote for the book, because all of these characters and all these circumstances are connected by the suit by Jarndyce and Jarndyce by the Court of Chancery. It's possible that Lady Dedlock, the picture of pristine beauty and nobility, and Joe, who doesn't even have a last name because he's so plain, and he almost doesn't even have a Christian name at all, is they're brought together, right? So it's it's a very exemplary clue of this text. So the namesake of the chapter is Tom Alone's It turns out that Joe lives in an area of London called Tom All Alones. It's likened to uh, essentially just a place of ash. There are houses that are falling down and it's this place that's very interminable. I think of Dante's Inferno a little bit when this place is described and we'll return here before the end of the episode today. Uh, Joe, in this desolate location, is likened to a language languageless animal because he is illiterate and he goes about the streets and he doesn't obviously know what the signs say and he can barely speak the same language as some of the other citizens here. And I found that part, of course, as a linguist to be quite fascinating because of the emphasis on literacy on being very communicative which joe is not and he is honestly a perfect representative unfortunately of this very desolate place of london tom all alone. i read this part as a criticism as i have said i <laughs> read most of this um but my question is was it was it a criticism or was dickens in his own omniscient way being sentimental about Joe's situation. We see throughout the text that Joe is mistreated and then he's treated very well in this vicious cycle and he's really a vehicle of the plot in some ways and he's used as a plot device especially as the main mystery of the plot starts to develop. So there's maybe a piece of thought for you is what is the criticism of Joe if there is one? There is a quote-unquote servant that seeks out Joe. We don't get much description. We get a lot of the dress. And this servant walks, though, like a a person of nobility. So this person is dressed like an upper servant but walks and talks like a person of nobility. This person makes him show her the places where Nemo was employed, Snagsby's lived, Mr. Crooks, and buried, which is that unmarked grave in the cemetery. Uh, this person has very beautiful, a be- very beautiful array of rings that Joe notices and pays Joe very, very handsomely. There is an interesting adage at the end that says, There's this connection that comes full circle as we started the chapter with the deadlocks. It ends with the deadlocks. There's a connection with Lady Deadlocks. Whereabouts that night? She goes to some balls, apparently. And also the ghost walk at Chesney Wald. The steps therein are very prominent that night. And my hint here is perhaps the steps are more prominent when there's some sort of injustice going on and that goes back to the main story of the ghost walk with this woman who feels that she's in disalignment with her husband (laughs) in the sense that he committed a great injustice to her that perhaps was perhaps was founded in some opinions here but perhaps was unfounded and my guess is is that when there are instances of injustice being played out With regard to this very old, very prominent family, the ghost walk steps are more prominent. Again, we get this from the omniscient narrator, so I find it to be really interesting that there's this almost mystical element in the middle of the introduction of this mystery plot. Chapter 17, simply titled Esther's Narrative, again by (laughs) Esther. We're in serial six now. We start to see this very cyclic pattern with regard to the book and there's a title um, Esther's Narrative that we see over and over again and we see this pattern where Richard is (laughs) noted at the beginning of every Esther's Narrative chapter so it's the start of a formulaic cyclicness within the book, which I find very interesting, especially considering this to be a new serial. There is a pleasant but child-like quality to Richard. And Esther notes that the childishness is the prevailing quality in him. So really the childishness is something that is taking him over to the extent that he's not able to be productive. Richard is starting to be harshly criticized at this point in terms of his actions and the way that he conveys himself the way that he's seen somewhat in Esther's eyes she's very quick to say oh no but he's my cousin I love him or he's you know a fellow ward I love him but also in cousin John's eyes he is starting to be seen as somewhat of a nuisance Something that I was thinking about as I was writing the notes for this section is that perhaps Dickens here is foiling Richard with Esther, meaning that he, Richard, could have a good or fortunate position if not for his natural tendency to squander everything he has. Esther, who had nothing before she became a ward of Jarndyce, has everything now, including most importantly, I think, a family and a community to fall back on, not to mention a fairly prominent position and a house to manage. So there's this very interesting foiling going on in the wards of Jarndyce. You could say Ada is in somewhat of a similar position, but Ada is not really developed as a character, unfortunately, in so in the reading that we've had thus far. So the Badgers, the people that Richard is apprenticing under, visit Bleak House, and the conclusion that they (laughs) fall under here is that Richard is not really getting along well in his training. There's a really great quote on page 231 that I'm going to read. All right, quote, It was a maxim of Captain Swasserts, said Miss Badger speaking in his figurative naval manner that when you make pitch hot you cannot make it too hot and that if you only have to swab a plank you should swab it as if davy jones were after you it appears to me that this maxim is applicable to the medical as well as to the nautical profession to all professions observed mr badger it was admirably said by captain swasser beautifully said unquote. I just love that quote. I think it really <laughs> it has to do not only with the criticism of Richard here, where he goes at something very determinedly for a few months and then it, he burns out and he's done with it and he decides to change. Uh, he doesn't have the aptitude or the capacity to dig into something as much as he needs to um, and I think that's something that's super valuable in a career that they mention. So this is sort of life advice from Dickens <laughs> and page 231 there. I also find it ironic that this wise quote, this life advice, comes from one of the most narcissistic characters in the book. I mean, let's be honest. A lot of the criticism that Dickens lays on here comes from narcissism, comes from Not only self-preservation, but self-effulgence. Just people who are so obsessed with themselves that they fail to see their own, not only their own flaws, but they fail to see how they're impacting the people around them. So there's just extreme narcissism (laughs) that's going on, especially in Mrs. Badger, who can only talk about her three dead husbands as if they are kings or something. And yet, we have this great quote from this woman's dead husband. So Richard, in the end, decides to switch to law to specifically study Jarndyce and jarndice, which we all know to be such a great idea, uh, especially since uh, Cousin John and Ada both do not like talking about it or relying on it, as Richard does. Richard quite thinks that he's going to have a fortune out of it one day, and that it is going to come to a conclusion one day we will see later in this section this portion that that is not the case cousin john tells esther in the growl growlery <laughs> late at night that well he tells her the story of how she became his ward which is that he received a letter from her aunt figure and The letter entreated him, please take care of this young child after I'm gone. There's been a very shameful event that brought this child into the world and she's going to need some help after I leave this world, i.e. after the aunt dies and he accepts the proposition without knowing properly who this aunt figure is. He sends Kennedy and Carboy, as we know in the first section, to investigate the whole situation and to be really conduits for him throughout Esther's guardianship and her, for lack of a better description, expectations. And we get this tidbit from Alan Woodcourt, the doctor, that he's going to China, India, he's traveling all around. I think that there's a possible love involvement with Mr. Woodcourt here because on page 239, Esther promptly notes that he is seven years her senior, which I don't think would be a relevant thing to add, especially since she apologizes for adding it, unless she is evaluating him as a potential bachelor of sorts, Uh, and I'm expectantly awaiting (laughs) his arrival back from these places, so we'll see. Um, He's described to be quite competent in his field, He also leaves flowers at Miss Flights, which Caddy brings to Esther, so take that as you will, but I definitely read it as a foreshadowing of sorts. Chapter 18, Lady Deadlock, narrated again by Esther. Richard decides to take his married time in transitioning from medicine to law, he, in fact, waits almost, well, a good part of the year where he enters law when the law and the courts are not in session. The whole family Ada, Esther, cousin John visit Boythorn, oh, also Skimpole. In Lincolnshire they live right or Boythorn rather lives right next to Chesney Wald. And there's this cool outside perspective of Chesney Wald that we get from Esther. Thank you very much, Esther. 247. Quote It was a picturesque old house in a fine park richly wooded, unquote. I really like the way that Dickens worded that. In a fine park richly wooded no commas there either so I, I i just like that description it's a very interesting look at Chesney chesneywald especially since we've only been inside <laughs> or distantly outside we've had the omniscient narrator's perspective and the older housemaid's perspective slash looking in on lady deadlock so This perspective is really, it meets those two perspectives in the middle, in a sense, which I find to be really interesting. The three arrive, I believe, on a Saturday, and they go to church the next day, which is a really small, dusty, kind of claustrophobic church, as Esther describes it. She talks quite a bit about the age of the church, how it's decorated and so forth, and it's contrasted with this great brightness that is coming in through the windows, esther in the middle of the church service sees lady deadlock and is overcome she has this moment where she's just washed by this emotion this thinking and something happens and esther represses it she does her best to uh, shove it down uh i believe lady deadlock is esther's mother mother i've believed this since like serial too. <laughs> so we will see. I believe, and I'm not spoiling anything because I'm recording this at a point where I legitimately don't know I'm repressing here <laughs> myself. Um, my belief at this point, as uh, the, I will take on the position of the na- naive reader here, my belief is that Esther's mother, mother is Lady Deadlock and her father is Nemo. Um, but that will all be foretold later in the novel. There's a ginormous rainstorm, one of the sections that we'll be going over in our episode later in the week. The rainstorm catches Ada and Esther and Cousin John at this little inn. Lady Deadlock is also caught in the storm, and she gets to talking with Cousin John, and she notes that they have indeed met each other before, and that Cousin John spent more time with her sister than he did her. Mademoiselle Hortense, the French lady's maid of Lady Deadlock here, uh, meets Lady Deadlock at the inn to sort of rescue her from the rain, but she gets mad when she's rejected and the beautiful girl from in town is preferred and she ends up getting laid off or maybe she quits, In any case, in this event, she takes off her shoes and storms off through this little meadow. Chapter 19, moving on, it's an omniscient narrated section. Another cue of the cyclic nature of this novel goes along with the seasons of the court, which I find to be very interesting. This particular section I would pay attention to while you're reading or maybe read it through again. It's very much like the beginning in style and description. And here, instead of the courts being open just after Michaelmas, they are closed for the summer. There's this very heavy description on especially the particular weather and the scenes. We get this amazing aerial view and these glimpses of different characters as they move along in their day here. And we settle interestingly on Mr. Snagsby, the law stationer. On page 262, we've got Mr. and Mrs. Chadband, visiting the snagsbys for dinner mrs snagsby is taken up by mr chadband's religious sentiments he is a preacher of sorts i have a quote describing mr chadband which i think is quite interesting i think if i if i may i think he's quite described like homer simpson quote mr chadband is a large yellow man with a fat smile and a general appearance of having a good deal of Tran oil in his system, unquote. Tran oil's like whale blubber oil. I got that from a footnote. This dude is the representation of religion, or at least fanatical religion in this novel. Of course, if we had a representative of religion in general, it would be a fanatical one. And uh, when I saw this character get introduced in the novel, I just thought, if this is our representative of religion, religion is doomed in this novel, right? Because this man is so overwrought, he is clearly, his even his external is not in order in a sense. Um, how could his internal state of affairs be in order? And therefore, how can he come to represent religion? So I see Mr. Chadband even in his description, even in his uh, and this first introduction of him, to be quite a staunch critique on some of these more overt instances of preaching, perhaps uh, representative of other preachers in Dickens' day uh, that is yet to be known. What I find particularly astounding about Mr. Chadband and his overwrought description is that the church connected with Esther is a very classic traditional church? It's even the place of a fairly important, I would say, realization for Esther. So it's it's almost a vehicle in a sense for her revelation about perhaps knowing Lady Dedlock versus this extreme where again the first glimpse of this preacher that we get. Is something that's overwrought, overburdened, and just extremely fluorescent, if I can say so. Late in the dinner, as Mr. Tradband is yapping away, Mr. Guppy and Joe and a couple of policemen join the dinner. Joe is caught with all this money that Lady Deadlock. Cough, cough, the servant. I, I think it's Lady Deadlock. <laughs> this servant that uh, has all the rings and wants to know where Nemo is. Uh, Joe is caught with all this money. The police officers are in question of him, of course, because he's so poor. Why does he have all this money unless he stole it? Um, And Joe tells the story about the woman with the rings and where he got the money. And it seems ridiculous, of course, to everyone present, but Mr. Mr. Snagsby catches on to the truth of it. Mrs. Chadband turns out to be Rachel, who was a worker of Esther's aunt and someone who also took care of Esther for a time before she transitioned into being Jarndyce's ward. Guppy is, of course, thrilled because he's obsessed with Esther. And they make an acquaintance together. Mrs. Chadband, aka Rachel, is another constant reminder, in my opinion, that all of the characters in this novel are connected with Jorges and George's in some way, and in some fairly important way, might I add. And so I think that's a perfect place to stop for this episode. Like I said, we will be getting to through serials seven and eight, and of course these three different quote sections and our more informal section uh, episode later in the week. I hope you super enjoyed this section and this novel so far as much as I have. Uh, it has been quite the experience, honestly, of reading such an involved novel and. Trying to be attentive to all these situations and characters and especially paying attention and paying mind to the broader thematic content that Dickens so painstakingly weaves in throughout the text. That's so important for this novel in general because uh, as small as the minutiae can get, really the message is most impactfully heard over the broad scope. All right, I will see you all later in the week. Thank you so much.